Hello, and welcome to the Communication Solution Podcast. Here at IFIOC, we love to talk communication. We love to talk motivational interviewing, and we love talking about improving outcomes for individuals, organizations, and the communities that they serve. Today, we've got Casey Jackson on the line, John Gilbert, and I'm Tammy. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. We have a very special guest today who I'm looking forward to learn a lot more from. Uh, It's Steve Wool. And uh, we were talking just beforehand here about some of his experience, which he has quite a lot of. Steve, I'm going to pass it to you, but just from being a hostage commander, a SWAT commander, um, over 25 years of experience, there's a lot there to dig into. So if we could just get oriented to your experience, your role, that would be really helpful to start us off. And then I'm sure from there, we can dive deeper into the aspects of, of what you've done and how MI might fit with that, how it might not fit with that. And you and Casey can can get into maybe some back and forth with that for a bit. You bet. Thanks, John. Thanks uh, for the introduction. Yeah. Like John said, I'm, I'm Steve Wool. I'm a 25-year veteran of the Spokane Police Department, coming up on 26 years. So I've, uh, I've had quite a bit of experience. I've been blessed to work in many different areas and facets of law enforcement. And some of the ones that I, I cherish the most have been both as my time as the hostage commander and SWAT team commander. They work together, which is great. But the, the hostage negotiation piece, um, how we deal with people, and that's how I really got to know Casey and MI motivational interviewing and how we can work together and how it would benefit us benefits the people in crisis, which is is ultimately our goal. And so I just uh, continue to try to strive to, to bring more education, more experience training to our team, to our department. Um, and so we've really worked well with IFIOC and with Casey to, to, to bring that experience. So it's been, been great for that. And I just appreciate the opportunity to meet and chat with you guys today. Steve, you know, I thought this would be fascinating. You know, you and I know each other well and, and I think one of the things that I think of what struck me about doing a podcast around this is aside from everything, all the chaos in the world, just to bring perspective or a clarity between so much of what law enforcement does, because in, in some ways, I mean, even when, even when I hear you say that, um, you know, the work that you've done, you know, in motivational interviewing, you really, it's hard for me to think of taking two more opposite ends of the spectrum. There's law enforcement very compliance driven, very, you do this expectation and motivational language is so person centered. So it just feels like they are truly opposite ends of the spectrum. And, and we've moved closer and closer in a lot of the work that, you know, at least I've been able to do in law enforcement and and with, you know, the police departments. And I think what I want you to start with is just start with the mindset for you specifically, especially pre-motivational interviewing, what is a mindset when there is like active shooter? Because I think this is like every single weekend we're seeing this. So, I mean, when you arrive on scene, especially just thinking post MI, pre MI, what's just when you arrive on scene, what are some of the just kind of core tenets of what you're thinking about in terms of safety, in terms of kind of operations? Yeah, you know, and I'll address the the thing you brought up first of being kind of different ends of the spectrum. And I think in the 50s and 60s, you know, I think that was more so. I think as time has come, we're kind of coming together to where at some point we're going to cross. And we're seeing that nowadays where um, 
the clinicians and the, and the behavioral mental health piece and law enforcement are really working well together. We're doing a lot of training together and working together. We're actually putting clinicians in our cars so that we can bring a service to the people in crisis that we haven't done in the past. That's vital. And that's where I think we're going to finally get that cross where we're, we're working together. And it's, it's really not different ends of the spectrum, like you talk about, which is so true, Casey. As far as the second piece, so law enforcement has tr- traditionally been the group that, that shows up when there's a, a, a violent encounter or a crisis, and we've got to control the scene to protect lives. Our first mindset is we need to secure the scene and protect and help save any victims that, are, that may have succumbed to injuries or to or whatever on those violent encounters. And so when we show up, we're not necessarily thinking of the, of the MI and behavioral mental health piece. We're looking at how can we secure the scene, make it safe, and then bring in and change gears from going 100 miles an hour to make sure it's safe and neutralize that threat to now helping those that are in need. That's kind of our, our goal initially as we show up. So you're right in that we, we, don't, we aren't thinking originally of um, how we're going to uh, help the, the victims, the, the mental health piece, but more how are we going to help them by securing the scene, making it safe, and then transitioning to that next step. You know what makes so much sense about that, Steve, is as I'm trying to transition, because I know a lot of behavioral health people listen to the podcast, you know, just a lot of different professions on the behavioral health healthcare side of it. For me, when I hear you say that, it reminds me of literally the function of what triage is about. You know, if, if somebody comes into, you know, the ER and they've sawed off their leg with a chainsaw, you know, they're not thinking about necessary comfort. They're just trying to stop the bleeding. And it's just such a triage moment. And I think that when I heard you say that, I think it helps my brain think of the the professional worldview I come from as well that yeah that's triage you know you it's health and safety first like that's literally health and safety before you're thinking about patient comfort like it's literally we need to stop the the bleeding first and then we can get into you know as we triage down from there so I, that's my translation that I think is really helpful um when you're looking through that lens if you would talk a little bit too because there was a moment when the first um training I remember you going through before I even knew you, there was a moment and it's a moment that just stood out in my brain where, um, Jan Takamoto was, you know, we're doing a role play. She's suicidal, um, you know, really in that role of doing an excellent job, kind of on the edge of a bridge. And you were with a team who was trying to really (laughs) practicing empathy, you know, and it just wasn't happening. Like it just, like there was, I, I could just see people fidgeting and some of the officers fidgeting. I'm just trying to, well, we'll get her off the edge and then we'll do MI. We'll get her off the edge and then we'll do MI. And it's just like, they couldn't get that. And then something clicked in your brain. And I, I physically, cause I remember squatting down on next to the desk cause she was on this supposed to be a bridge. You know, she's sitting on the edge of a desk and, and I remember squatting down and kind of watching you guys operate and something in your brain shifted. Like I literally could watch it. So would you, talk about that moment. Cause you and I have talked about that. Jan's talked about that moment. What, what shifted? Cause you guys were all kind of fumbling and trying to figure it out when we're doing that mock scenario, what bring people up to speed with kind of what was happening for you in the class and kind of in that moment. Yeah. You know, like you talk about, this was a, a classroom setting with a very professional person who is putting herself in a, in a vulnerable spot of, of being suicidal. I've unfortunately had to negotiate with and, and try to assist and help people in real life situations very similarly. Um, and sometimes they go great. And sometimes 
you have to find that person that connects with the person in crisis to get that. In in this classroom setting with Jan, you're exactly right. It's it's um, it's tough to replicate a real life situation. Yes. But I think I think we got as close as we can yeah. in a training environment um, that we probably that I probably have ever been a part of. And I think what happened is originally it's I've got a goal of um, working with this uh, with Jan who is suicidal who's going through some some just some family issues and I'm trying to help her um, take her off that ledge right both ledges you know that she's dealing with the ledge of the of the bridge and the ledge that she's dealing with in the the behavioral mental health piece and so I think it, I've got in my mind this is how it should go and a lot of times law enforcement and physicians, educators, everybody has their mindset of this is my game plan. And it's going to go just like this, A, B, and C, and then it's going to work yes. out. Yes. And when it goes from A to C and you miss B and it's like, well, that, that wasn't a part of the plan, right? Casey, that, that's, that's not supposed to happen like that. I think what happened in that environment was uh, at, at one point we were, we, I had a group of, I had two, had two other negotiators with me and we were, we were talking to Jan and we were trying to, um, just find that little, I guess, crack that we can get into and, and just relate just as humans relate with her as she's going through a crisis. Um, we're not going through the crisis. We're not living the crisis that she is or in the real world, what, what the, the people are. And so in this situation, remember you and I chatting on the side for just a second about um, just showing that empathy and, and really just um, being in that scene with her and trying to understand even just a fraction of what she is going through. And what I think clicked for me was just realizing that this wasn't hostage negotiator, SWAT commander, Steve Wool doing A, B, and C to get her help right. and to get her there. It was Steve and Jan talking through real life situations to try to, try to, to get a, a, a common ground where I could, really empathize and almost feel what she's feeling. I think that that's where MI really comes into play is once that happens, it was a, um, it was almost like something came over us in that we, I almost felt like afterwards, this was a real life situation where I just wanted to hug her and take her yeah. up to the hospital and be with her to walk her through that crisis that she had been in. And I think when you can connect with somebody and I think that's where MI comes in and helps us is if you can connect and not necessarily um, you're not having the same emotions and feelings and the visceral, you know, concern that they're having. But if you can connect on a different level and, and, and almost I hate to use the word win them over, but almost partner with them as you're trying to walk them off that ledge, both the physical ledge and the and the mental ledge that they're on and make that connection. And that's where. MI really helps is making that connection and realizing what we have to do to make that, 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 that transition and connect them to where we can actually bring them back to us and make them, um, or, you know, help guide them down the path to recovery from, from their crisis. You know, Steve, when being there and watching that, the way you articulated was, it just, I mean, it was such a great kind of narrative of, of, what I watched go down in that moment. Cause I, I think people can think role plays or they can think a mock scenario. And I think that's what it was prior to that moment is three officers in a training who got the material were displaying what they'd learned. 
and somebody that was doing a phenomenal job embodying the complexity of it and the the role play of the officer's practice was not lining up with the depth of despair of the person that was suicidal and i could i was watching that despair because i mean there's three officers standing in front of their classmates you know performing you know a role play and there was that moment when you and I talked and then you step back in and I remember the moment so vividly. And I think what you just said was so important is that connection that happened because in that moment, all of her defenses melted, all of your, <clears throat> like you said, the law enforcement side of you kind of melted in that moment. And it wasn't a kumbaya moment. It was a moment that she felt heard, she felt seen and she felt understood. Because as soon as that came out of your mouth, I saw her face drop down and she almost got emotional. And then she kind of, she diverted her eyes to me like, oh my God, like it was almost like her shoulders slumped in that moment. It was, it was such a real moment. And I think that's the thing that was so odd that it transcended the role play of what you were talking about. That it's like, I get how this person, like I can feel how this person feels. And that person felt this person feels how I feel. And in that moment, that's what we look at in MI of where resistance or discord completely washes away or dissipates because now it's not a tension moment. Now it's a, a massive ambivalence moment. And I think that to me is what's so fascinating, the way you deconstruct that of looking at with all the violence, there's health and safety that are not MI moments. Compliance is compliance for, for officer safety, for civilian safety, for victim safety, all those things that that's just fundamental from a triage perspective. But then there's this are there moments where that resonance with two people can happen and the, the tension starts to melt away a bit? And I think that to me, it, there's just something that happened in that moment that was just, it was fascinating to watch because it was, it was a moment. I mean, it wasn't a role play. It was a moment that happened there. Yeah. You know, and, and you're exactly right. You no, know, I've been in, in real case situations where we, we've been negotiating with people who are either suicidal who are homicidal or have committed crimes and now have become, they've kind of come to the end of their rope of what they're going to do. And, you, you know, it, it takes a while to build that rapport. Like you talk about, um, a lot of times you can throw training and, and you can think back of all the things you've done, the steps here, here's what I need to do. But at that, that time, all that is kind of almost out the window. It's almost incongruent. It's, it's, yes. you've got to find that connection. And I think that's where MI comes into place. You can, you learn those steps to build that connection. And, and then, then it becomes not negotiator person in crisis. It becomes two people looking to working together to have a, a, a great outcome versus us against them, them against me, yes. that type of mentality. And in, in the training situation, I think you nailed it when, when um, it was almost like all three of us at the same time went, Oh, there it is. We exactly with it. Oh, that right there. What I what I just said broke down the barriers with Jan, who is now willing to talk to me, let me in a little bit, which brings me closer to her, which builds that connect, you know, that connectivity that we need so that we can get her um, the help that she's needing at that time, even though it's role play. This goes on in, in real life every day in law enforcement and over over my uh, about 14 years as a negotiator and a team commander, I, I listened and saw this on a regular basis where we have the initial button of heads, not, not uh, you know, negotiator, I'm here to help you. You know, you're going to let me help you type of thing to building that rapport, 
building that that friendship almost to where it's like this is what this is how we want it to go to help you and once once you have that and you have that relationship um, it tends to to work in our favor because we're able to to really show them that we're there to help and get them the help that they need and that this is a temporary crisis not something they can't get over and that's our goal you know the the one thing that I want to you know I'm going to own just my own bias um my previous bias against law enforcement. I was never anti-law enforcement ever. I mean, it's just, that's just not me, but I was, I just had the same stereotypes that some people have, you know, just like, you know, they're just cops. They're just, you know, blah, 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 blah. And even when I was asked to do the initial trainings, I had my own hesitancy around that about, I, I just don't understand the point. This is going to get bastardized in a way that, you know, they're saying they're using MI and it's just going to be another tactic um, to do what they do. One of the things that that was so profound for me in my depth of understanding of how complex and it's still so I'm still so naive in it, but that really helped my understanding in a different way is the number of things that you have to assess on scene in microseconds that you are 100 percent accountable to to the victim, to the perpetrator and to the community. Like microsecond things that you're accountable for and that your profession hangs on these microseconds, um, your career hangs on these microseconds. And, and I'm in, what's that? That is such a good point. Like, I've never really thought about that, but wow, that is a lot that your brain is having to process do in microseconds. Microseconds. I had to say that. And, 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 and yeah. Tammy, that's what, that's what we want to talk about this from an MI perspective because you think of when we're doing advanced, advanced trainings and we're doing skill building and people just keep talking about, God, MI is so hard because we've got all these things going through our brain. And so I take that MI brain of mastery or proficiency in MI and all these things we're paying attention to linguistically of language that we're paying attention to. Now you take that and now you put everything environmentally that you have to pay attention to. Did you see somebody just got out of the car over there? Are they like the view of a horizon from law enforcement from one particular officer who's exceptional in what they do? They're picking up on environmental cues, like on regions of the of the the scene out in front of you. Like every little thing that flinches or moves, their brain absorbs that and thinks in those microseconds from a health and safety perspective. And now you're trying to think about linguistics, about where's the sustain talk, where's the change talk, where's the resistance talk at the same time. So you have to be in this moment is what we expect from an MI perspective. And that's that's negating everything in the environment that involves all these other people around at the same time from a health and safety microseconds that they have to pay attention to. So that was for me, once I was able to kind of integrate from an empathetic way of looking at it from a law enforcement perspective and why... There was a initially an initial kind of pushback against you. I don't think that works for the world we work in because there was a lot of that pushback. There continues to be that pushback in law enforcement at times. Like, yeah, that that's not part of our world. I think that's for me was the high empathy side of going. My brain can barely comprehend what they have to assess when they arrive on scene. And not only what they assess when they arrive on scene, every microsecond of environmental factors that are going on that they have to make decisions about that are being filmed. We can't get people to to audio tape themselves to submit to get feedback for motivational interviewing. Law enforcement officers have cameras strapped to them that are measuring and monitoring every single thing they do. 
behavioral health people wouldn't allow that to happen because they don't want to be monitored to that level for liability. Yeah, it, yeah. Our, our, that our, clinical, our clinical settings are so different, right? I mean, w- w- when you're dealing with somebody in a clinical setting, it's it's pretty sterile, it's pretty controlled. Um, we don't we don't get that luxury always, right? We right. there. I mean, like you said, Casey, we're we've got body cams. Most everybody has uh, you know cell phones being recorded, um, and, and you and you kind of nailed it on the head in that we're we're our brains are slicing things up all the time. Of where's the threat? Where is um, I, I need to make this connection and help this person? And they're they're whether they're in crisis, whether whatever is going on. But if I got all these other stimuli around me that I'm trying to um, take in and and make a decision on, and a lot of times it's seconds. Is that person grabbing that gun to assault me, or is that person grabbing the gun to get rid of it because he doesn't want to have a deadly encounter or, or bad situation? And my brain is trying to figure that out in seconds, milliseconds uh, of what's going on. And so it's um, it's it's funny to 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 have friends in the law enforcement side, which I do, of course. And it's funny to have friends that are non-law enforcement when we can be out and and I see things or observe things or see suspicious activity together as a group. And and people don't even see that. That's just not how they're trained. And and I'm not, I'm not trained like a, a physician or an educator to look at ways to, to teach and to do, and to do this surgery and to do that. My brain is, is taught a different way. And so a lot of times it's, uh, it, it, how we how we train each other and how we work is incongruent. It just it's just it is what it is, um, and our environments are so different. So yeah, it's I, I can see how you would view, especially with the media and everything, law enforcement and how you know it's just my way or the highway and, and what's shown on TV. When as you know now, dealing with um, oh, CIT yes. and and the classes yes. we put through and some of the uh, our our officers, especially here in Spokane are some of the most well-trained to deal with people in crisis. We, we do this through repetitive reality-based training and bringing in uh, professional people like Casey and to do these type of things um, so that we can teach them so we have the favorable outcomes. So we, in that millisecond, we make the, hopefully make that right choice and potentially save somebody versus well, you know, going the other this way. This is what I think is so interesting too you know what? I like what you talked about the, yeah, we, when you think of fifties and sixties, they were opposite end of the spectrum. And now this, this merging, you know, I've, I've done some of the co-deploy I've done ride alongs uh, because I wanted to get that perspective as well too. And <laughs> what's, it, what was helpful for me is because it, that became so much more clear. There is always going to be a delineation between law enforcement and behavioral health as there should be. There's a delineation. You're not social workers. That's not your job. But the community safety and peace officer side of it very much starts to blend there. And I think that's the part of the Venn diagram that's so fascinating where these promising practices are starting to converge. Because what I think of is when I would do the ride-alongs, it's like, oh, my God, motivation works so well in this domestic violence situation. Like this would be like... You're just, if you guys knew this, you would, this would be such an excellent outcome. And there's other scenes that I, that we arrived on. I'm thinking yeah, this is not relevant. MI is not relevant here. This is a health and safety. This is a community. This is just, it's not an MI moment, but the merger, like my ultimate moment of merger is of when in those seconds, when they're reaching for the gun, 
that the brain is so well trained that you're listening to the language and being able to assess the language from a resistance sustained change talk perspective and and trying to to weave more of that in the complexity that i look at with that is not only are you my brain goes into watching steve juggle 18 balls what he normally is doing is juggling 18 balls and now i'm throwing eight more in there when you're thinking from an mi lens of linguistics and how you track linguistics so is it impossible no is it something to try to strive towards i think that's where i get excited and get fascinated on this hybrid of and and is that going to have an impact on outcomes because it's not my attachment to everybody learning mi that's not my attachment my attachment is to better outcomes for all um and if if even three of those balls or two of those balls get thrown into that 18 balls that law enforcement juggles and there's two or three mi components that get tossed in there and all of a sudden use of force is reduced by another 40% or, you know, that, that these situations that, that more often not end in, you know, in violence or death, that those are reduced greatly because of this interaction that we can measure and look at. That's my obsession with what you're talking about. These ends of the spectrum are actually starting to merge in the middle. And I think that cross-section with these evidence-based practices, even beyond motivation, obviously the law enforcement gets, you know, engages in that to me is just, to be part of that history that's being written right now to me is just mind blowing. Yeah. You know, you said something that uh, I wanted to, to touch on Casey um, in that your in your mindset, your outcome is to, is to make sure it's safe for all, for all people, right? That's law enforcement's number one outcome. Exactly. As well. We're all on the same page. It's a matter yes. now of having the tools and the abilities um, to, to have that safe outcome and in law enforcement, we're just put in those situations more than the, the the normal person is, right? The the guy who's driving the tanker truck or delivering, you know, groceries. We're just put in those situations more and more, but we have the same outcome. We want the same things, and that's why we do the trainings and the and and um, do the things we do. And, and you're just in a, an environment where you get to see that more, especially with the body cams that that you see. Um, yes. You get to see the work that our guys and gals do out there really to yes. get the same outcome that you would want, that they would want, yeah. that their mother would want, you know? Yes. And the thing that I can look at Steve objectively or as objectively as possible is <laughs> the missteps that I see in law enforcement from a MI perspective are no different than the missteps that I see from physicians or nurses or mental health professionals or addiction specialists that submit audio tapes to us. Like the missteps are the missteps because they're learning a new skill set. So I think that's the thing that's fascinating too. It's just like, because I get my own writing reflex of, oh my gosh, this could be handled so much differently. It's no different than when John and I are coding tapes and listening to audio sessions of clinicians in practice going, oh my gosh, that was just such a major missed opportunity. Like this could be a different outcome if you had these skill sets mastered a bit a, a bit more. So I think that's also that coming together and merging of it, of um you know, of these evidence-based practices that we know about. Yeah, for sure. What I want to, what I think it'd be helpful thinking about, I think because of where the chaos in the world, so much of the chaos of the world is and, and so much around guns and gun safety right now and, and violence. Is there a, is there a situation you can think of that you've been in that you know was very obviously, you know, this is what we do from a hostage negotiations. This is what we do from a law enforcement perspective. But in retrospect, you've you've wondered like kind of what, I just wonder if I ran it through an MI lens, was there other things we could have added to the equation? What I want to say for people that are listening, 
the way that I look at this and the way I want to ask this to Steve is not from what we did wrong or what we could have done better. There's a quality assurance that we know that what was done was right. And then continuous quality improvement for any, I think for any human or any behavioral professional is we hit the mark where we needed a mark. And then how do we want to take it to the next level? That's my curiosity for you. Is there a scene you can think of or a situation we're in there? It's like, I know we handled it well per protocol. And then when I run my brain through an MI lens, I wonder if I had a different skill level or if it was a little higher in MI, I wonder if this part of it could have been different. Is there anything you can think of? Yeah. Yeah. One, one comes to mind um, that I think it happened. I'd have to look at the tape, but maybe 2017, 2018, we had a long drawn out negotiation with a gentleman in crisis who had a gun and he had about, I think there was two women and a child or a couple of children um, inside this home on North Crestline up here in Spokane. And th- this was an all night negotiation where we felt like we really, we, we would, we would, as I look back and listen to the, the tapes, we negotiated, we, we really went through everything that we um, could to, to get this guy um, to, to give, you know, give himself up so that we could get the people inside out safely. And then it, all of a sudden it would take a left turn and we'd be back to ground zero. And then we'd have to build that back up. And we just didn't know if he was playing with us, um, what was going on. Um, and mind you, we'd, we'd, ha- we'd been on there for a long time. So we had tactical units there. Um, I was the, uh, both the SWAT and hostage commander at that time. Um, and so I was in a command post and I could listen. I had my negotiators. I could, I could listen to what, what the conversations were. Um, and you would feel like you would, you would start making ground. I mean, he was just still resistant to, to everything and we just couldn't get it there. Um, ultimately in the end, I think after about 11 or 12 hours, um, uh, the decision was made where we ended up doing an explosive breach and going in tactically and getting him in custody. When we, when we had that window, we, we could view into the house and we knew he was um, away from everybody. And, and it was a tactical situation that ended uh, beautifully. We got him in custody. Nobody was hurt. Um, ended up, it, it, it was a great outcome, but I look back and I think, could we have talked him out of the house or really gotten to him through the MI piece that we didn't, where did we miss where potentially had we gone in and something bad happened, he took his own life, whatever, any negative outcome, we would have looked back and said, okay, what could we have done different in this situation? Great outcome. The tactical team, the negotiators, every everybody down to the decision of of making the decision to go, um, it was done right. But ultimately at that time, when it falls on, on my shoulders as the tactical commander to say, okay, You've got the the green light to go. Nice. We're going to make this go. If it if it ends bad, um, the, you know we're going to look back and say what could we have done different. This turned out great, but I still we look at that as a failure, as in we couldn't talk him out of that house and had to had to go in there um, by you know tactical means. And so I always wonder could could, could we have done something different to um, have him come out peacefully, give up, then we get those people out safely. Um, and we take away any chance that there would be um, a, a bad outcome. And so that that probably one comes to mind more than anything on that, Casey. I think this is a perfect way for us to get this is a, a perfect topic kind of to to wind down with. But I actually want to spend a bit of some time here with it is <clears throat> I think because I've seen and listened to so many of the hostage negotiation videos. Um, and this I'm going to lay this out ahead of time, just as people are listening, is. I'm not going from, I think this is right 
or, or from a righteous perspective. This is just from my observation from looking from a pure MI lens. Um, so it's not a right or wrong thing. I noticed that so many people, when I've done trainings for law enforcement, they said, you've got to read Never Split the Difference with Christopher Voss. Like, you've got to read it. You've got to read it. So I actually finally read the book. And and I can see that mindset from a from a negotiator, like, you know, international negotiator perspective of this is what we train on these concepts. What's really interesting to me is what you said about the time frame. And then I look at the time frame of the officers that I've trained and why is it so truncated? You know, it, it's the level of credence. Well, we're still talking life and death on some with suicidality and some of the videos that I watch, um, some of some of the hostage negotiations I've had lately. But in those hostage negotiation tactics, so much is about building relationship, building relationship, building relationship, whatever you can do to get that engagement or that connection or build a relationship. And what I watch in the videos, and, and I think this I'm going to pair with the experience that you and Jan had in that role play, the difference. Building relationship works to a point till the person you're talking to goes, wait a second, this is bullshit. You don't care about me. You're a fucking cop. And then all of a sudden it backtracks again. And then you have to get that. No, 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 no. You know, I used to play baseball when I was a kid too. You know, my dad smacked me around, you know, and you know, you know, it's people have been through that. So I hear those let's relate, let's relate, let's relate, which in motivation for me in motivational learning talk is the potential for resistance increases exponentially when it's between two people. When it's like, this is my experience, this is my experience. And all of a sudden it's, wait, you can have my experience because you're a cop, you know, you're law enforcement. And and then all of a sudden it, it, it falls apart again. And then you have to build that back. And then it's like, okay, somebody has to take team in and take over in that 11 to 12 hours, you know, and see if you can get a better, well, he has a better connection with them. The difference when I look through an MI lens is that is not an expression of empathy. That's a self-centered conversation. You're talking about yourself in relationship with the individual who has the gun. And that there's a chance for it to get connections, but it literally is throwing spaghetti at the wall to see which is going to stick, which one of us is going to get the best connection with him. And I had connection with him. I just lost it. And I, and I listened to those conversations. And when I look from an MI lens, it's, and again, this is not the way everyone in MI, all MI trainers train it this way, but the way I train it is that it's not about building relationship. It's about people feeling deeply heard and understood. And it's that transcendent moment that you talked about with you and Jan, that it was Steve and Jan it wasn't Lieutenant Wall and, you know, CEO Jan Takamoto. It was these two human beings in a moment that were like, oh, my God, I feel heard and seen and understood. That's different than relating to someone. And so much in hostage negotiations, what I see is this. How do we relate? How do we relate? What's the, what's the catch? What, where's the hook in there when I'm thinking about, you know, the never split the difference thought of it? It's where do I find the hook? Where do I find the hook? Where do I find the hook? In motivational interviewing, what it is is, when do I get inside their worldview to the place that they forget that it's me that they're talking to? And now they're talking out loud about their own brain and their own ambivalence. And, and as soon as I hear in law enforcement, but in those moments where they hear the ambivalence, they want to jump in and fix it and solve it. We can help you with that. Come out here and we'll talk about it. And it's like, and then all of a sudden it's like, fuck you, I don't want to come out and I'm not going to talk about it. And now all of a sudden we lost them again. That, so that example of me, I think, is such a perfect example when my MI brain looks through the law enforcement lens and the MI lens. And I think, gosh, these are those these are those um, very narrow corridors where I think that you can see this merger happening as those skill sets continue to increase. And like I prefaced with, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I mean, my MI brain goes, OK, there's the moments. Those those moments that are, you know, 12, 13 hours are ones that I think could be reduced with those the person coming out saying, I don't want to harm myself. I've got, this is so out of control. What am I thinking? 
and almost having that dialogue outside of his head to be able to see himself and go, I love my children. I don't want to end their lives. I don't want my life ended. Like, I just want this situation resolved, but it feels like there's no option to have this resolved. To have his brain, to be able to get his thoughts out of his head so it's not so trauma-informed in his own brain that he can get it out of there. And it's like, okay, there's where that would be a fascinating mastery to watch that next evolution happen. So, and again, that's purely from my brain, not from a law enforcement brain. Right. Yeah. You know, and and I think we have to realize there are some situations uh, where the the person in crisis or the the suspect um, doesn't want help. And and we and yeah. we've seen that where they're intelligent, they can play the game, or it's just no matter they know the ending, no matter what. You can throw everything at them. I could bring Casey to them and have him, you know, do MI and and and, and deal with that ambivalence. And Casey's not going to get the, the outcome that we want because that person has made up that decision. Luckily, the majority of the time we can. But I think you're spot on, Casey, in that there are times I, I remember clearly a time on the Monroe Street Bridge where I was talking with a, a gentleman who was wanting to jump off the bridge. I was there and I was I was talking to him um, and I was trying to relate and, and get that hook into him to, to get him the help because all I wanted was him to get off that bridge and get him to the hospital and get him help. But I didn't Absolutely. have that relationship with him. And we switched out in that situation. I switched out with another negotiator at the time. His name was John O'Brien, uh, who you know, Casey, oh you've God. worked with. Yes. Some stuff. yes. Yes. And he, and he, he related to him on a different level than I could. And it, now is that, does that mean I did something wrong? Maybe, or maybe oh. it just was, I didn't have that connectivity with him where John came in. And I remember clearly them talking about their Irish backgrounds. That's where it started. And then it became very similar backgrounds, very similar upbringings, all these different things. Um, and we ended up getting him off the bridge and, and John did a, a, a masterful job getting him off the bridge where I just couldn't get, I couldn't get that connection um, that John got with him. And that's, what's great about, um, you know, having multiple negotiators is somebody might have that MI moment where they look at it and that training kicks in and it just connects like it did with Jan and Steve, like it did with John and this, this uh, gentleman, um, yeah. and, and so in the end, it, not everybody's is going to want to get the help or, or put up a, you know, to, to break down those walls and let us in. Um, but if we can, if we can increase that amount every year, then it's a win. And that's kind of our goal Absolutely. Um, here at the Spokane police department and, and, and nationally in law enforcement, our goal should be always to have those positive outcomes and whatever it takes training wise, just learning from past mistakes. We're human. We're going to make mistakes. How can we be better next time? That's that's kind of our, my mantra is how can we train and be better next time? You know, Steve, and the point that you made that not only that, which I think is just a. For me, it's just so good to capture this conversation because I think it's absolutely vital that we have these kind of conversations. It's also the piece of the way that I think it's so clear when we have these conversations to understand where does MI work and when does it not work? When is it not appropriate? And it, and even what you just said, if there, my, what I always tell people in training, if there is 0.00000 ambivalence motivation, we won't work. My nutty little brain is if there's even 0.1 ambivalence somewhere in their brain, I'm rubbing my hands together going, I want to get access to that part of the ambivalence and see, can I tease that out more? And that's why I want to reinforce what you had said. If there is 0.0000 ambivalence, it's a done deal in their brain. And this is just cat and mouse. Um, and they know what the end is going to be. Motivation is not a tool. It's not an effective tool. It doesn't work in those situations. It's not indicated and it doesn't work. 
the exploration to see if there's even 0.1 ounce of ambivalence inside of their brain is that that to me is such a high level of trying to exercise that and tease that out to see if it exists. But if it's zero ambivalence, motivation doesn't work because their behavior is in alignment with what their values or their goals are. And there's nothing. And that's, and that's when I train people and I tell them, then what do we have left? If it's not behavior change, then we have to shift to compliance if there's no ambivalence. And to me, this is, it's like, that's why, you know, there's this, this marriage, but this separateness between motivation and law enforcement, that there is a separateness. There's still two separate entities, but there can be this kind of marriage between the two where it's like, God, there's a good working relationship. And there's times that, you know, I'm this parent and you're this parent. Um, that's just the way life is. Um, and I think it's the same in law enforcement when there's zero ambivalence going on, our, our default is compliance then as it should be. Um, yeah. and yeah. When there's ambivalence and we should be working towards behavior change. Yeah. You know, and, and it's it, when those axis crosses, like we talked about when it crosses, yeah. like it did with Jan and I, or other yeah. situations I've been on, that's when it's like, oh boy, that this, this, this is, if we can do this every single time, we need to replicate yeah. this, this, this yes. works, you know, like you said, there are some people that, that it's not going to work. There's no ambivalence whatsoever. There's none. Right. Um, but when you, when you use it, whether you in a training environment, use it on, on a training person or you use it at home with your children or your spouse and you see how yes. it works and you go, wow, this stuff's cool. This is magic, right? <laughs> it is magic. Yes. That's, that's where it goes. And then, then, yeah, then you teach your wife and she starts using it on you and it's, oh, it's, it's terrible. I give in and yeah. it's terrible. And what's ironic is your behavior still doesn't change, Steve. No, so I'm gonna work with no, I've got zero ambivalence, Stacey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, this was just, this was so productive. I mean, I just, I could do this for hours, but I think My this pleasure. is, yeah, I, I love doing these podcasts, but this one for me is just like, I, this feels really, really good. I'm, I'm just glad we were able to, to get this captured and I want people to be able to hear this. Um, I just think there's so much value right now for people to, to yeah, listen. To I, I, I just thank you guys for, for allowing me to come on. And I guess I want everybody to know you, everybody, you include everybody that in law enforcement, in our world, like you said, there's a, there's a lot of distrust and just, you know, media and stuff. Ultimately, our goal is to have that happy ending every single time. And, and we train that way. We, we, that's why we, you know, brought you in and we, that's what we want. Our goal, um, we're all on the same page and we're all on the same team. And so it's, it's a matter of, of, uh, putting the right people in the right spots to, to get, you know, the training and the education and to see this stuff succeed. That's ultimately, um, our goal. I know it's your goal. And so these type of podcasts, these discussions are so needed and so important. So I just appreciate the opportunity and the invitation to come on here. Yeah. yeah and I appreciate you accepting that. That was, it's, uh, it's just been wonderful for me. So thank you for that. You bet. All right, John. Well, thank you, Steve, so much. There's so many things that I'm not going to say that I have curiosities about or things to comment on, but I will just say your point, I do want to bring up, I'd be remiss to not say having multiple negotiators and different even emotional intelligences the level of casey's emotional intelligence with empathy versus maybe another officer the difference in life experiences and even cross-cultural things of of empathy yes. coming in or another officer relating to another type of a person that uh is in um trauma or something like that. I just really want to give voice to how critical that could be 
uh, for anyone listening to this um, uh, that is dealing with a lot of different situations, different negotiators, different levels of empathy, and really just trying it out and seeing what works for you. So uh, anyhow, that being said, Steve, super educational for me. I know I learned a lot from you. So thank you for uh, giving me more empathy into the uh, into your world. And hopefully everything stays healthy for you and your team and everyone there. And uh, I don't have anything more. Is there anything else for you, uh, Tammy or Casey, that you'd like to throw in before we wrap up? Steve, if people want to connect with you or the Spokane Police Department, is there a good way for them to connect with you guys? Yeah, you know, I, we've got uh, our, our public information office unit. We, we uh, deal with a, a lot of requests and, and um, connections and we've got Facebook and we've got di- different uh, avenues. Um, our, our director in charge of that is Julie Humphreys with, uh, the Spokane police department, but we're, we're on, we're on, on the internet, right? So people, we definitely, people can reach out to us and, um, we can connect that way and, and we'll continue to, to, to strive to, to provide the service that, that, that people deserve. Excellent. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Julie said that you, you can find Spokane Police by searching at the Spokane PD or Spokane PD on either Facebook or Instagram. So thanks, yes. Tammy. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Communication Solution Podcast. As always, this podcast is all about you. So if you have questions, thoughts, topic suggestions, ideas, please send them our way at Casey at ifioc.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y at ifioc.com. For more resources, feel free to check out ifioc.com. We also have a public Facebook group called Motivational Interviewing Every Day. We have an amazing blog and we have lots of communication tips on our website. In addition to all these amazing resources, we do offer online public courses on our website on motivational interviewing and effective communication strategies. Thanks for listening to the Communication Solution by IFIOC.